You're listening to Win Win, an entrepreneurial community with your host, Ben Wolf. And welcome to Win Win, an entrepreneurial community. As always, I am your host, Ben Wolf, and we are here with another special coronavirus edition of the, uh, of the show for, for business owners. And uh, we're going to cover today how to successfully bring a new product or service to market during a time of economic disruption, especially like like we are right now. Uh, so make this you know show more available to yourself. Make it more available to other people by subscribing, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you happen to be listening to this. And uh, you'll be sharing the wealth with yourself and others in the future. Uh, and with that, I want to start introducing my guest today, uh, who is VP of SAP.io's Foundries program. And that program is a no equity accelerator dedicated to helping startups which have a current or planned integration with SAP. We'll talk more about what that is and what that means later. But um, and 40% of those have a female or an underrepresented founder as part of their mission. Uh, she has been the founder and or COO of several startups. Uh, she was a consultant uh, with McKinsey to media and telecom companies for over eight years collectively and uh, not consecutively, but collectively. And she graduated from both Harvard University and Harvard Law. You can find out more about her work at sap.io slash foundries, F-O-U-N-D-R-I-E-S, sap.io slash foundries. And with that, I give you Vanessa Liu. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. My pleasure, and thanks for coming on. And, and like I do with all my guests, I want to make sure people have a good context for understanding what you are, you know, what you're sharing about and where you're coming from. And so if you could please just, you know, give us a quick two-minute history of, like, where you came from, how'd you get to be what you're doing today, maybe stuff that's not necessarily reflected in your introduction or your kind of resume on paper. always been interested in innovation ever since I was a little child. And so when I was in high school, the way that innovation represented to me the future was embodied in science. And so I really wanted to become an astronaut. So I chased after that dream for a very long time, even through college, and thought I was going to become a scientist and hopefully deployed in, in a future space mission. And it was only around the time in my senior year that I realized that so much of innovation for me was also about the impact that you have and the immediate impact that you have. And I realized that doing uh, being in the sciences where that impact could be much farther out was not as fulfilling for me. So that began a process of meandering through law and then eventually to business where I discovered the thrill of starting businesses. So I started doing that with McKinsey and with the clients that we have and enabling them to start digital businesses. So I did that again and again and again for mm -hmm. many media and technology clients in the course of my eight and a half years there, primarily uh, for broadcasters, for newspaper publishers, magazine publishers, and helping them think about the future of their business on digital. And when I moved back to the United States, as I was living in Europe at the time, I felt like mm -hmm. it was time for me to start something of my own, like I had the chance to do that for clients again and again and again, and would be there to ease them in the transition and then hand off a business to one of their internal champions. 
I remember at the end thinking that I didn't want to hand back those businesses anymore. I wanted to be the one that that ran them and would make the mistakes, but also just feel the fulfillment and the impact of creating something new. So I joined forces with a business partner, Andy Russell, to start Trigger Media Group, which was a venture startup incubator. And so we started two businesses, one in the media space mm-hmm. called Inside Hook, which is now under real real life media and uh, real clear media. And the other one is a business called Fivo, which is a social commerce business. And on the back of that, we've created two very interesting and viable businesses. And I saw firsthand the disparities that are out there for underrepresented founders. Uh, my, my business partner being a a white Caucasian male, um, he was able to raise our $22 million in a matter of three months. And I remember Mm -hmm. afterwards, all of these founders would come to me who were people of color or women and um, would ask us for funding. And I just realized that firsthand that there was a big disparity. And so that became my focus area. And I just feel so lucky to have been able to join SAP two years ago to do exactly that. And so I oversee our foundries for North America, which is part of our early stage venture arm. And this Mm -hmm. is all about helping companies that are late C to series C in the enterprise technology space get mentorship, get access to customers, and to integrate into our platforms. And as you had mentioned before, at least 40% of the companies that we work with are founded by underrepresented founders. And in our New York program, that's 100%. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. If you don't mind going back to to something you, you, said, you said a couple minutes ago, just curious to understand better, as a... Uh, white or Caucasian male myself, just did you find like when you were fundraising as like an Asian American, I don't know, did you find that you had a different experience? Like it wasn't as easy for you or like what, what I didn't, I didn't hear the disparity part. Like, was that something that you saw or you experienced as being more difficult? Yeah. So I saw it firsthand. And so he was able to tap into all of the ties that he had from high school uh, all the way up to his his um, the partners that he worked with at the private equity group that he was in. And I remember just thinking like, that's amazing that he's able to tap into his network so quickly. And he also had a great track record. But a lot of it was he was just able to lean upon these people so easily. Mm-hmm. And I remember just looking at the investor list and just thinking like, oh, you know, hey, Andy, did you know that out of the 57 investors, like only four of them are women? He didn't even realize that, that there was like that, mm-hmm. that lens. And that became mm-hmm. something that we always talked about, like how we always wanted to make sure that we wanted to have a more diverse pool of investors to work with. And then what I realized in working with other founders, just how much harder it was for underrepresented founders to get that same funding. Like I would tell them just how easy it was for us to get that funding. Like by the time I joined Mm -hmm. him, about 75% of the funding was already done. I brought in Mm -hmm. an investor and I was able to do that quickly, but I was just thinking, how hard is it for other people? I I, I saw business plans side by side where they were very similar and Mm -hmm. because one person would have better networks or just like would be perceived Mm -hmm. to be 
just like stronger in some type of subjective way, they would get funding over mm -hmm. typically somebody who was underrepresented because their their networks were not as strong. Mm -hmm. That's really it's really interesting. So you're saying is you're saying is that it's partly kind of like a legacy thing of of have it, of the of the network. I guess you're saying primarily and also an element of just kind of like subjective feelings of competence or who knows what that that may go into it as well. So that's I mean it's really interesting. But and so to give us a little yeah. a little understanding also of the uh, you know of what you do now and you know the the startups and 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 younger companies that that you work with and that you you mentor and help grow. Um, so just to have a little context for that, like what is like what is SAP? A lot of people don't know. So like what is SAP, and why is it that startups or you know or others want to might want to integrate with it? SAP is one of the largest enterprise technology companies out there, but it, we always joke that it's it's a one of the largest companies tech companies that you've never heard of because we power the mm -hmm. back ends for primarily large companies. And so, the, out of the Fortune 2000, we probably work with about 90% of them. We have yeah. over 440,000 customers around the world. We work. Um, we have about over 100,000 people at SAP globally. We started off in Germany, so our founders 48 years ago, five of them came over from IBM and just realized that there was a much better way to help their customers who were large enterprise companies to manage their back office. So it started off in mm -hmm. enterprise resourcing planning software. And so if you think about planning your financials and how much inventory you have and tracking the demand and supply, that's mm -hmm. the root of where SAP came from. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, it's become, it's become a huge platform where all of these big businesses run everything on SAP. Mm -hmm. So if you think about like a Nike or Under Armour or a Target, they work with SAP in some way, either from mm -hmm. us not only helping them with their enterprise resourcing planning side, but also with their HR, their human capital management side of the business mm -hmm. to their CRM, to also sourcing supplies and indirect goods. Um, so that, and, and also now we also help companies with their experience management. So we made an acquisition in Qualtrics about a year ago. So we are powering the back ends of every practically like every large company that you've heard of, there is a very big chance that we work with them in some way. And so that's what <laughs> okay. SAP does. And, um, and the reason why startups want to work with us is because we have this broad ecosystem. So by working together with us, they get onto our platform. And so say like when the NBA, for instance, is using us for their human capital management, they're able to then tap into our startups that are in the HR tech space and be mm -hmm. able to bring in those point solutions to the success factors instance that they have. Success factors is the name of our human capital management uh, business. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's exactly what we do. We're able to introduce them to customers. And so like the NBA, so we worked very closely with the CHRO of the NBA, Eric Hutcherson last year in our HR tech cohorts. And so that's something mm -hmm. incredibly valuable for startups are getting mentorship 
they're getting access to customers, and they get integrated into our platforms and products so that we can be offering out their point solutions to our customers. Right. And I, I guess it sounds like, you know, more from my experience, what I'm used to is, you know, Salesforce running our, running our business in the back, back end of the office off of Salesforce, and there's a whole app exchange. So Salesforce doesn't have to invent every single app and every single functionality that people use them for. They just have, uh, you know, a, a set of natively integrated, you know, apps uh, that you could find on their app exchange. And those are, I guess, similar to these uh, these integrations that companies have with SAP. So SAP doesn't have to develop every single functionality in-house. Uh, you can have, you know, tons of geniuses out there building, you know, motivated to build their own companies, um, and, you know, with great ideas that SAP doesn't have to come up with or, you know, or fund or whatever. So it sounds, so it sounds really, it sounds really cool, I guess. Uh, so I understand why people would want to, uh, would want to not only integrate with them, but, you know, obviously if you have a startup that, that can get a kind of a head start in, um, in connecting with, uh, companies running on SAP uh, to be able to try to get them as their customers and, and you know, get a better integration and get the mentorship from you guys obviously sounds like a great sounds like a great thing and how exactly does that program work it's called the, it's called the foundry program so how, how does it work what stage are the companies that come in when they join how big are they at that stage what, what is the foundry program like yeah. So being a part of our early stage venture arm, we actually have two parts of what we do. We have a fund where we make investments in companies that are typically mm -hmm. seed and series A level when they come in at that stage with small checks. And so we don't lead those mm -hmm. investments, but we are strategic investors alongside institutional VCs. We typically make 12 to 15 investments a year. Then on the foundry side, mm -hmm. we have this is a no equity, no investment program. So it's no skin off the back of a startup except for time. And we have an open call for applications. Mm -hmm. We have eight locations globally where we run two programs a year in each location around specific themes and also in line with a particular line of business. So a theme that we are doing right now in the New York program is in retail tech. We are also doing a travel tech program in San Francisco right now. We're doing an industry 4.0 program in Berlin, Tokyo, and Singapore. And we're about to do a consumer products one in, um, in Tel Aviv. And so these ones are always in line with a particular line of business. And an open call means that we typically get about maybe 150 to 200 applications where we do due diligence and we whittle that down to seven to 10 companies that we invite for each program. And the programs are about three to four months long where it is really heavily curated for that class of companies that comes in from a content perspective, mm -hmm. from mentors that we bring in like you and and also um in terms right. of the types of customers that we bring in right what um i, I guess and, and and what size are these companies when they're coming in usually yep on the foundry side they're typically anywhere between late seed so that could be say like a five to ten person start up to even up to including series C companies because we are stage agnostic given that we're a no equity no investment program it's much more about whether or not there is a case for integration with SAP 
And so typically mm. the ideal company that comes to us, they're already, they already obviously have a product in the marketplace. Like that's, that's, that's table stakes. And also they're working with right. at least a couple of enterprise clients, ideally that overlap with our customer base so that we can then uh-huh. integrate them into SAP and then offer something even more meaningful to that to you know to those types of customers. And so we find that that's the strongest type of partnership that's out there where it's a win-win for everybody. It's a win for SAP, it's a win for the startup, and it's also it's a, it's also a win for our customers because our customers are constantly asking us, "Hey, you know, where is innovation happening? Where can we find point solutions to these pain points that we're experiencing? That's what SAPIO does. We're doing that on behalf of our customers. Right. That's awesome. And it definitely gives me a, a better idea of something I was wanting to ask, which was just kind of like, well, on what basis do you whittle it down from the 150 to 200 to the 7 to 10? Um you know, and so with that, I want to I want to transition into kind of like the meat of, of our conversation today, which is uh, which is, you know, one of the things that you are helping people do. You're helping these foundry uh, cohort members, these these, you know, these uh, startups do is going to market or expanding in a market or, you know, bringing out a new product. So, you know, mm-hmm. especially now with what's going on with everybody on lockdown, hopefully that's going to start easing up, you know, in a few weeks, but, um, or a month or two, but obviously economically things are going to be changed for years to come, uh, with what's happening now and with the continuing existence of the novel coronavirus over the coming years. Um, what, you know, there's going to be a lot more challenges maybe than there were before. Like what, you know, how, what do you have to say, I guess, to people that want to bring a bring a product to market, bring a new service to market in the, you know, in, in an age of disruption like now, in an age of coronavirus, mm-hmm. what should people know about bringing a product to market or a service? Like right now, it is exactly what you said. It's such a critical time for businesses out there. There are so many industries that are incredibly affected by this. I mean, the programs that we have right now in North America started about five weeks ago, four or five weeks ago, right at the beginning of the yeah. the um, uh, the beginning of, of of the pandemic, at least in the U.S. from a um, from like a, a growth perspective. And so we happened to have chosen mm-hmm. retail tech and travel tech months ago, and we were <laughs> launching these programs. Right. And these are two of the industries that have been most affected. And so this is something that we're feeling yeah. so acutely with our startups. We're talking about how, number one, how are these startups going to survive, right? And so we've been talking so much about cash Mm -hmm. management, about obviously going out there, applying for the SBA's PPP loans, getting them through that process, but also understanding what it is that our customers are feeling from a pain perspective and understanding that so that they can then you know, pivot their offering or modify their offering so that they can address those pain points. So take Mm -hmm. our retail tech cohort right now. We have nine companies Mm -hmm. in our midst. A majority of them uh, were already working on things that are about omni-channel experience management. Now that's more important than ever as so many businesses now are just only digital and they can only sell online. Mm. And how can they mm. do that? So we have, for instance, one company that is a 
which is um, uh, a company that transforms your assets into 3D assets. That's so invaluable now for for like you say like a retail company that's trying to sell online where you can't try on that shoe like you would in a right. store. They have the ability to allow customers to use their phone and just project an image of that shoe on their foot to see what that'll look like. And they could change color, they could change right. the style. And that could help um, retailers like Adidas or like Nike and Under Armour in a very meaningful way, just from like a digital experience perspective. So that's what we've been focusing on. We've oh, actually yeah. asked each of our companies to come up with that, you know, what is their offering right now in the midst of COVID-19 that could help retailers. And so we are taking that to customers right now and having very meaningful conversations with them because this is a crisis for everyone around the room. And this is about being able to come up with innovations that could immediately have an impact. So it is about being pain point driven. Right. Right and so right and sometimes people have to adapt their messaging or ad adapt their actual offering, as you mentioned, uh, to mm -hmm. where people are right now, where their heads are. Um, what are the biggest mistakes that people are making now? I mean, whether again, whether it's your cohort members, just people you see or hear about out there, what are the biggest pe mistakes people are making and bringing products to market or trying to grow? I think just just only focusing on your technology and how great it is doesn't sell. And that's something that we tell our companies again and again and again. Like enterprises don't buy software because, oh, it happens to be the shiniest technology out there. They buy technology because it solves a problem. And so you have to be even more laser focused than ever about what is that problem you're solving for. It's a consultative sale. And so that's the one thing that is so important that we see happening again and again and again. Companies around us are like, well, but we have such a great technology that does X, Y, and Z. If you do not articulate very clearly what that use case is, you're not going to get very far. So that's number one. Number two, I think right now for companies, it is about preparing yourself for the worse from a cash management perspective. Unfortunately, this means that there is a lot that you need to do that's really painful from a cash management perspective from, do you need to furlough employees? Do you need to you know, cut, where do you need to cut spending? Um, this is always really, really mm -hmm. painful, but if you do not make those decisions quickly right now, you won't have a business in a few months time. And I think the mistakes that we're seeing right now is that companies are taking too long to grapple with the realities of of the situation right now and to really right. project forward what that could look like. Like companies that wanted to raise this fall, for instance, you have to have a different plan B right now. You see raise this fall meaning meaning fundraising, a different message for, for potential investors? Correct. Right. Like a lot of investors right now are, uh, there are a lot of VCs right now that are essentially putting a pause on, on looking at new deals. Mm. And so that's going to make it really tough. And I think especially at the seed and the Series A level, which are primarily 
um, smaller funds out there. A lot of the small funds out there mm -hmm. might have issues from a capital call perspective. And so you'll see those knock-on effects. And we do think that fundraising is going to be that much harder. Unfortunately, this also means mm -hmm. that those companies that have been not as well funded are going to have a bigger issue. And unfortunately, that also means that a lot of underrepresented founders are going to be adversely impacted by this because they typically have a an issue when it comes to funding already. If you look at the VC landscape, um, uh, just the percentage of funding that goes towards underrepresented founders is very low. And also their deal sizes tend to be lower too. That will make it that much tougher going forward. Right. And going in, going into, you know, one of the things you said a minute ago, the, um, you know, the, uh, I've heard the, the phrase that, you know, you, you have to be more, you have to fall in love with your customer, not with your product. Uh, as just being another way of, of saying right. the point that you made earlier, that the focus has to be on what problem you're solving, what pain point are you addressing, how are you how are you helping me? You're saying to the to the client or customer, and and not on this is why my product is so great or this is all its great features or whatever. That that can't be the the primary thing. That's just a means to an end to solving that that problem. Um, that's right. And that's that's uh, very tough. Do you have any? I mean, I, I don't. We didn't talk about this in advance. So I don't know if you have any reading or learning on this, but do you know the extent? I don't know. No one knows, but do you have any any sense of how much contraction there's going to be? I mean, like how many? At what percentage of of businesses are not going to make it? You know, you know, nine nine twelve months from now. Um, you know, or, you know. Or, yeah, only anecdotal evidence. Or, you know, and, yeah. Well, certainly. But yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So anecdotally, just with the portfolio of companies we've worked with. So at SAPIO, we've worked with um, north of 175 companies. We've been like, I, I've been very mm -hmm. much in touch with the ones in North America that we've worked with. So like over 50 of them. And we've been having conversations in terms of how um, our companies doing faring from, for instance, a cash management standpoint, how are they faring from um, like a customer standpoint? We know that it differs industry mm -hmm. by industry. So our travel tech cohort right now, obviously, that that cohort's all about supporting enterprise customers and business travel is now mm -hmm. at pretty much a zero, right? It's like down to maybe two to three percent right, right. of what it is usually. And mm -hmm. so that is going to be a question of when will activity resume at what levels? And also, are you able mm -hmm. to sustain your business until then from a cash standpoint? And it really mm -hmm. differs. It differs by stage. We find that, you know, companies that are a little bit like later stage are just able to ride things out more because there's actually more to manage from a cash management standpoint. If you're talking to a five to 10 person startup, there's only so much that they can do from a cash management standpoint. And so that's what's going to be very, very difficult right. through these next few months. And you're going to see a big difference and you're going to see companies surviving um, because they happen to have just raised money or they were able to get like a a bridge loan or like a bridge round done during this time. So those are the, going to be the ones that survive. Right. Maybe got a little bit further along, a it's little bit more of a head start. What, right. What about right. sales? Um, I guess there's one last question. 
What about sales uh, from this perspective? People want to go to go to market or bring a new product to market. Um, and uh, what what do they need to know in terms of their sales process, their salespeople? Yep. So obviously sales right now is so critical and it's about really, um, really ensuring that you work on relationships that you already have. So that's something that we're talking to all of our startups about. It's not about starting to create a new pipeline with customers mm -hmm. that you've never had a relationship with. That's going to be very, very difficult. Um, this mm -hmm. is about being able to cultivate those relationships you've been building. And that's something that um, our startups have been saying, like they've been taking that to heart and they've been able to get conversations really far along with, you know, some some contacts that they've had for a little bit. But now things are accelerating because they're able to pitch what they're doing in a way that solves problems. And that's really mm -hmm. important. Right. That makes sense. I mean, look, and there's a lot, a lot of really good information in what you're sharing today in terms of, in terms of going to market, being focused on what problems you're solving for people, not on how great your product is, on adapting and pivoting either your products or your message, uh, to where you know to 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 what people's pain points are right now, um, and just have a better understanding of of also the the, the challenges that underrepresented. Uh, founders and business owners are, are facing and um, you know what people what people can do and obviously kudos to you for uh, for for what your your work and your mission in in that respect like you said not even 40% it was 100% of the current cohort you said uh, which is really cool and um, and it was a pleasure being being part of uh, you know the virtual mentoring event a few weeks ago that you had and I uh, hope, you know, certainly wish everybody a lot of success uh, with the current group. And thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Ben, and also for all of your help with the no, startups. No problem. No problem. Vanessa, so again, you can find out more about, uh, uh, about the Foundry program at uh, sap.io slash foundries. And that's uh, Vanessa Liu. Thanks for coming on and look forward to seeing everybody else on the other side. Thank you. You're listening to Win Win, an entrepreneurial community with your host, Ben Wolf.